I'm Chris Till, and this is the Digital Health, Digital Capitalism podcast. Hi, so today I'm talking to Tihaj Ajana about her work on biometrics and uh, forms of digital um, physical surveillance and also on uh, self-tracking which um, she sees I suppose as a form of of uh, self-surveillance uh, in the sim- in a similar mold to the state level biometric surveillance she's also looked at um, if any of you have anything you'd like to say on these topics or if you'd like to get in touch you can find me on Twitter at Chris H Till and you can find Tihaj on Twitter at metric life and you can also find my blog where you can see a list of all my podcasts and some uh, links to some of the things we talk about today with Tihaj uh, my blog is this is not a sociology dot blog I hope you enjoy the interview so uh, now I'm talking to Tihaj Ajana who is a senior lecturer at King's College uh, London and also Marie Curie Fellow at Aarhus University. So, hi, Tihaj. Hi, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no, thanks for coming. Um, It's great to see you again. Um, So, uh, today we're going to talk about some of uh, Tihaj's um, work uh, that she's been conducting for the last uh, few years. Um, She's uh, done lots of work around uh, biometrics, um, but more recently has been uh, conducting some work around self-tracking, particularly this is what she's working on um, in, in Aarhus. So I wonder if you could start off by telling us a bit about this this recent work. How have you come to this do this work on self-tracking? Uh, sure, yes. Well, as you know, I have always been interested in technologies of uh, measurement, uh, biometrics uh, more specifically. So in my earlier work, uh, I've conducted research on the governmental use of biometric technology. But then I moved, uh, I would say, organically um, and spontaneously to the more personal level to look at how biometrics is deployed at the individual level. So that's why I found in this emerging trend of self-quantification and self-tracking a very valid and very strong example of how biometrics is uh, gradually and increasingly moving from the governmental sphere at the level of the state and organizations to the intimate sphere uh, at the level of the personal and the individual and also uh, the communal. So that's how I came to uh, be interested in uh, these technologies of uh, self-tracking. Okay, that's really uh, that's really fascinating. So you 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 feel like it's moving from this kind mm. of this, this sort of quite grand state level to the individual. Absolutely, it's it's a move. It's a shift from the top down mm. to the bottom up. Yeah, but it does not mean that the the top down is being replaced by yeah. the bottom up kind of um, manifestations of these technologies, but they are being complemented. Mm. Um, so we have now uh, this technology spreading in the intimate sphere, but also remaining as very strong tools of government at the state level and organizational level. So, could you tell us a bit about um, what particular kinds of technologies you're interested in? So. Um, in, in terms of the, the self-tracking ones, but in terms of the biometrics that you previously looked at as well, what um, what kinds of things are they doing? 
Um, well, initially, uh, in my early work, I looked at how biometrics is being deployed in the domain of immigration management, border security, and citizenship uh, regulations. Uh, so these biometrics were primarily technologies of identification and identity verification. The technologies that try to um, fix the identity of the person uh, and verify whether who you claim to be is who you really are. Um, as for my current research, I'm mostly looking at technologies that enable users to track their uh, bodily functions and bodily uh, activities, uh, such as uh, sleep patterns, calorie intakes, steps walked, uh, weight, BMI, and, and so on. So it is more at the level of the health management and fitness uh, management from a personal individual level. But that is not to say that this technology is purely personal. We're increasingly seeing how also organizations and healthcare uh, sectors, whether private or public, uh, and also government and insurance companies are very much interested in this personal use of self-tracking technologies and trying to feed the small data that is produced through these techniques uh, into a much larger kind of big data ecosystem, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I've really got from reading your work and, and particularly how you've drawn on people such as Foucault, um, um, and Deleuze and I, I think I think you might mention Ian Hacking as well mm -hmm. and Nicholas Rose's yeah. work and I think for me what a lot of those people often assert in different ways is how those individual level kind of statistics and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and data are always connected to the, the broader level because you have to be placed into that broader absolutely. network yes. that broader kind of database for it mm -hmm. to make any sense anyway mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely and I would say that for this reason for the work of Michel Foucault has been mm -hmm. instrumental uh, in this regard because when he talks about uh, these technologies of government uh, and measurements and so on he talks about it in relation to uh, the macro level the governmental level uh, but also the individual level he talks about the population the, the body of the population but also the individual body so the the species man and the individual body as well so that's why for me analytically it's very important to straddle both the macro and the micro in order to understand more what is being at play and at stake in this uh, kind of developing technologies mm. and so again for me the, the it seems the the body is is central to what you're to what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, and um, so I um, I read about I read your your book Governing Through Biometrics, which mm -hmm. is fantastic, and I recommend it uh, recommend it to everyone. Uh, which I think uh, was based on your PhD research. That's right. Is that yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and in there, you you talk about um, various theories, which you have said, theories of the body as information. Mm -hmm. Um, and ways of seeing that the body as, as made up of, of data, I suppose, or information of various kinds. Um, what kinds of effects do you think these kinds of discourses, these ways of seeing the body as information have on how we manage our bodies and, and, and think about our bodies mm. in general? Uh, yes, well, I think generally and traditionally, when we think about the body and its boundaries, like where the body starts and ends, we think about the skin as being that boundary which separates us from the outside. Mm. Uh, but increasingly, developments in information technologies and in biometrics are challenging this notion that uh, we begin and end uh, at the boundaries and the borders of our skin. Uh, because these technologies are reminding us how the, the body is extendable and introjectable. 
When bodies are turned and scanned and become data and information, they become distributable across networks and databases. Uh, our digital double, so to speak, the copies, the, the kind of the digital scans of, of our biological characteristics become amenable to storage, retrieval uh, and management in ways that make our body boundaries very malleable and very flexible and very extendable. So that's why I feel that when <coughs> we start thinking about this ontology of the body as information or the body as data, our assumptions and our kind of like ethical intuitions and ethical, uh, what we are used to, to think of as an ethics of the body or body integrity become challenged because it's no longer just about the skin. If we get our t skin touched, or we, if we get our bodies intruded upon, like physically, uh, then that makes the ethical issue problematic. But now we are shifting this ontology from the body as flesh to body as data. So even the flesh can become an information. So that's why I feel that there is so far a lack in regulatory frameworks and ethical uh, paradigms which can actually attest and account uh, and uh, for this ontology and, and protect the body when it becomes a form of information on, or a form of data rather than merely um, a flesh kind of ontology. Um, so yes, yeah, so I feel that these technologies, what they're doing, they're inviting us to rethink what we mean by um, body ontology. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have a body nowadays? Because it's no longer, as I said, just about the physical presence in the world, but increasingly our bodies and the, the digital information are distributed across in a rhizomatic matter and oftentimes we have little influence and little control over what happens to that data who has access to it uh, who it is shared uh, with so that's why we need a kind of a rethinking of our political ethical and regulatory paradigms yeah so really we don't really know how to deal with this mm. new th this new era this new kind of form of of data um, I think that's absolutely right. I wonder, do you think that this this sort of informationalization of our bodies uh, and ourselves, kind of more broadly, does it have a um, potentially an alienating effect? Do you think that this this idea that we can have a, a data double, or you know, we're, our our bodies and our uh, our kind of bodily practices and quite personal um, things about us can be stored and manipulated, and mm -hmm. as you say, kind of spread out. Um, yeah. Do, do you consider that to have a, a potentially a kind of an alienating impact? Um, well, sure. It all depends on the context as well, and depends how you define alienation as well. I mean, if it is about distance that these technologies are creating between us and our bodies, for sure. I think these technologies, what they are doing, they are actually creating um, uh, a quantitative as well as a qualitative distance between us and our bodies because they enable control at a distance and they enable a, a remote manipulation of data without us being even aware of it. But paradoxically enough, what these technologies are doing as well is they are, they are making us even more linked to our bodies. When our biometric identity becomes a means through which our identities are fixed, uh, and our bodies become our password, our witness, sometimes even against ourselves, then there is even more proximity to our bodies than before. Then your body becomes the token of trust. It becomes the, the means through which you are identified and your identity is verified. Um, so there are two things happening here. So. Uh, on the one hand, we have a distance that is being created through uh, this datification of the body and life itself. But on the other hand, we have 
an even more kind of proximity and even more fixing of the individual to her body for the purpose of identification. So two things are happening uh, concurrently. Yeah, and so that's it seems initially kind of paradoxical uh, to say that the that these abstract just data points um, are actually fixing us to our bodies. But again, that's something that you show really clearly, I think, uh, in in your book as well, um, that particular people with particular, uh, often particular kind of biological or perceived kind of racial or ethnic characteristics um, are fixed to their bodies and to their identities in different ways. Um, and those kind of biometric markers then have those kind of real world social impacts mm. on uh, on how they can move around um, the world and what's available to them. Um, how do you see that that kind of that that process um, occurring in the sense of um, it seems a, a very uneven process <laughs> to me? Absolutely, yes. Oh, totally. Well, I think when when we look at these biometric technologies, we have to think of them as technologies of categorization. Mm. So that's the primary function. So first of all, they identify, but also they categorize. And as we've learned throughout many historical examples, categorization is never neutral or innocent. Categorization is always underpinned by uh, by political assumptions, by ideologies, by preferences, and so on. Um, and in my book, I talk about the example of refugees and asylum seekers and migrants and how their bodies are now becoming uh, a means by which they are uh, either given access to a certain border or a certain social service or a a certain space. Uh, So in this sense, biometrics becomes the means through which governments are able to discriminate between Mm. one individual and another, categorize between one group and another, uh, and oftentimes with material effects, because as you mentioned, um, your biometrics becomes um, a means through which you can either move around easily or you can't, depending on your citizenship, your nationality, your ethnicity, your class, uh, your economic background, and so on. So that's why these technologies, I never see them as neutral, but they are very much littered with ideologies and and political dimensions that we have to be very, very uh, conscious of and mindful of their effects. Yes, absolutely, and uh, and obviously you um, you did most of the research for that a few years ago, and I think the the book was published to, uh, 2013, 13, yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, the this is these are areas which are kind of mm. constantly changing, and things uh, things are kind of changing a lot, and something that that really kind of struck me that um, it, you, you cite Nicholas Rose a lot, um, uh, quite a lot in, in the book, is someone who's uh, been very influential on my thinking as well. And um, uh, you mentioned that um, when, when he discusses Foucault's biopolitics, he kind of claims that contemporary politics is, is not racialized mm. and nationalized. Um, and uh, I think perhaps um, when he was writing those kind of sources you were, mm. you were talking about, it was perhaps seemed, um, seemed more true maybe than it does now. Absolutely. I wonder if you, w- would you agree that actually recent developments, Brexit, Trump, yeah. these kinds of things, speak to actually a more of a, a racialized and nationalized mm. politics maybe even than, than than five or ten years ago absolutely well i think when nicholas rose was writing about biopolitics in that sense he was writing about it in a context whereby uh, it, it was the height of neoliberalism mm-hmm. and what neoliberalism did as a paradigm it tried to actually uh, lay claim to being agnostic towards mm-hmm. nationality and class that what matters is really performance productivity mm-hmm 
so it was more about economics rather than uh, kind of nationality or ethnicity or color. <coughs> not, that is not to say that neoliberalism has purged our politics from no. racial elements or, or ethnicity and so on. They remained lurking in, in the background and they were invoked you know, time and again, mm. but they were not the core of neoliberalism because mm. it was the paradigm of this kind of advanced capitalism is very much about productivity and performance, as I mentioned. But I think what we are witnessing now um, is also, I would say, a start of the demise of neoliberalism mm. because we are coming to a dead end with neoliberalism. It has shown that as, as a as a form of management and government, it is not really working for everybody. Um, but unfortunately, instead of rethinking a new paradigm, what people are doing, they are resorting back to this kind of traditional uh, notions of nationality, uh, populism, and, and so on. So what I'm seeing now happening at, in the political landscape is very much happening alongside also a decline in the ethos of neoliberalism. So when Nicholas Rose was talking about um, a kind of a formal government that is uh, devoid of nationality and class um, and ethnicity and so on. That was probably true of that context, but now we are seeing definitely a revival of these traditional notions of uh, the state nation uh, kind of composite and uh, the rise of nationalism and so on and so forth. And they're happening concurrently with changes in our economic and landscape as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And there's been a lot of discussion of the decline of neoliberalism mm. in, in the last in the last year or so, and um, I think that in the area you talk you're talking about it, that's where it's at, it, at its kind of most mo uh, most powerful. Because I think there probably will be some elements of mm. it which yes. which continue in certain in certain ways. Um, but at the same time, I would say that. Uh, it has never been a case where there is no discourse or practice that is based on nationality or ethnicity yeah. because when we think about it and that's what Etienne Baliba mm. talks about when he invokes racism without race mm. perhaps uh, in the context that Nicholas Rose is talking about what has uh, like uh, racism has become replaced by immigrate anti-immigration discourse mm. so migration became the surrogate term yeah. to talk about racial issues mm. But now, not in the name of color or ethnicity, but in the name of the migrant or the asylum seeker or the refugee. So it's not like these things have completely disappeared and now they're coming back. They've always been there, yeah. but we talked about them differently. But now it's as if the language of race is being recuperated and thrown back into this black box of um, yeah, current political um, discourses. And that's, but I suppose perhaps one of the things which is different um, is is the the technologies that are available um, for managing, um, for observing, yes. for surveying, mm -hmm. um, uh, and for controlling uh, populations. Um, and again, as you show really uh, really kind of cogently, um, is that those technologies um, and including that technology kind of system mm -hmm. broadly, kind of systems of analysis and things like that, um, have a big play a big role in. In the defining process, certainly the defining yeah. who who's in and who's out mm, and, mm. and who can do what. Absolutely. Um, and it's there where um, you you draw on. Um, so I think probably the people you uh, draw on most, uh, the, the theories draw on most, uh, Michel Foucault, who mentioned, and Nicholas Rose, but also uh, Giorgio uh, Agamben. Um, and I think mm. I, I, I've often I, I've looked at Agamben less than than, than those others. Um, 
but I've, I've always kind of maybe struggled a bit with positioning positioning yes. them, uh, uh, them together and th- th- there is certainly some overlap I think in their thinking but then mm-hmm. they are quite different in many Absolutely. ways and I think you 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 kind of um, place them um, very um, very nicely and, and, and show the kind of uh, the <coughs> distinctions um, how would you characterize the, the differences between their kind of understandings of biopolitics particularly maybe focusing on, on Agamben uh, sure, yes. Well, Agamben, what he's tried to do, he's tried to uh, break away from what Foucault has argued with regard to biopolitics, because when you look at uh, the um, Foucault's approach to this political system, he argued that biopolitics is, is Marx's historical era, uh, whereby biology has become what is primarily the preoccupation of politics. Mm-hmm. And he, he stated that from the 18th century onward, we have seen the shift in the in the political paradigm whereby biology, life itself, is what is at stake in mm. political uh, programs and so on. But what Agamben was trying to argue is that, well, there is no historical break because from the very beginning of politics, uh, biology has always been um, the object of government. So it is not like in the classical era, you had something different, and then after the 18th century, suddenly uh, life itself emerged as an important issue. But for Agamben, this has always been the issue. So he refused to subscribe to the Foucauldian uh, kind of historical break between um, the classical politics and the the modern politics, which he terms biopolitics. Yes, so the other crucial difference is that for uh, Michel Foucault, he also uh, characterized modern politics as a shift away from sovereign power, which is the power to take life or let die, towards biopower, which is all about making life or letting die. Um, But conversely, for Agamben, sovereign power is still persistent in our contemporary modalities of governing uh, and and, and doing politics. Um, And he talks about the state of exception, he talks about uh, Nazi camp as the paradigm of modern politics. He talks about uh, this obscure Roman figure, the homosacker, which is the man that can be uh, killed but without being sacrificed, which means he can be killed but with impunity. Um, and he links that to the case of what's happening now with refugees, with asylum seekers, with people who are crossing the borders between, <coughs> for instance, North Africa and Spain and dying in the process but without any uh, impunity and so on. Um, so these are the, the the kind of the qualitative differences between these thinkers. So Foucault looks at biopolitics as something that is completely different from classical politics, whereas Agamben he tries to remind us that where life and biology and body has always been what is at stake in the in in the political programs. Uh, and for me, it was so important to look at both and also to look at the work of uh, Nicholas Rose. So as to uh, overcome the limitation, because obviously for Foucault, he, I mean, because of his death, he wasn't able to complete his, his thesis on biopolitics. Uh, and as for Agamemnon, I found that his, um, uh, his arguments around biopolitics are somehow too, probably too narrow and too neg- negative and too gen- general. Mm. They are too general. Whereas for Niklas Rose, his arguments regarding biopolitics are also restricted to the figure of the right-bearing, responsible, agential citizen, but he does not say much about uh, refugees or asylum seekers or all the figures that are 
not necessarily under this category, they're not subsumed under this label of the responsible rights-bearing citizen. So I was hoping that by combining the approaches towards the study of biopolitics, I can actually um, create a more nuanced account of biometrics and how it is being used as a governmental tool uh, and, and an example of biopolitics itself. And I think um, one of the most powerful ways in which it's used is um, is to create this kind of state of exception um, and almost uh, apply the, 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 um, the, the figure of the homo sesa, uh, as Agamben calls it, to particular individuals or particular groups to say that these normal rights don't apply to you um, and what we've been seeing in uh, in the last couple of years uh, with the kind of the, the refugee mm. crisis and, and, and lots of people being effectively left to die yeah, uh, right. in the Mediterranean and and that seems to speak very clearly to that mm. uh, you know it, it's, it's, it's not taking those people's lives away but it's certainly not protecting them, protecting yeah. them in, in any sense um, and one of the really interesting mm. and really kind of uh, quite scary aspects of that uh, as well is the way that you um, use this notion of the the function creep mm, mm-hmm. um, of uh, I think of both of, of that categorization and of the use of of the technologies and the, and, and the biometric measures as well. So, if you could say something about how that process the process of function creep works. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, function creep. Uh is a term that we use to talk about how these technologies have spread from initially uh, a very restricted case or restricted kind of space <coughs> to uh, society at large. And that's why for me, a genealogical and a historical approach to these technologies is very crucial because it showed us that, for instance, in the case of fingerprinting, uh, uh, this was a practice that is primarily reserved to um, those who are labeled as criminals. Mm. Uh, or anthropometry, uh, which is the kind of predecessor of of biometrics and so on. So initially, the people that were the target of these practices were primarily uh, those labelled as criminals, and later later on, asylum seekers. Mm. But what we are witnessing now is that it is the body of humanity in its totality that is being the target of of these biometric um, practices. If you want to go to the US, and you don't hold a US passport, for instance, you will automatically be subjected to um, biometric identification. You will have to submit your fingerprints to the immigration um, or border officer. Um, and I find that troubling. I find that troubling in the sense that increasingly these technologies are became, becoming normalized. Mm. Now, nobody sees in biometric uh, fingerprinting at the airport anything wrong. They yeah. see it as a matter of course. Okay, that's what you do when you when you when you want a visa or when you go to another country. So they're becoming normalized, and they have they have seeped th- from these spaces of exception, such as uh, a detention center or an asylum center or a prison or a police station, towards the entirety of the social space. I, I, I use my fingerprint to access my phone about a hundred times a day. Well, <laughs> here we go. So, and, and that's the interesting the interesting point as well is that some sometimes we're not even coerced to no. give away our biometrics. We do it voluntarily. So, because probably you trust that Apple will <laughs> not misuse your fingerprint. But when you think about it, it's a private company. Why should I give it such an intimate aspect of myself, which is my unique fingerprint? Why should I hand it to a private company? But we do. 
And that is the that is the interesting thing is that these technologies, and that's where I find the work of Nicholas Rose really interesting. They're not simply about coercion, about about force as such. I mean, sometimes they are, mm. but they're not always just about that. But we sometimes submit ourselves to these practices voluntarily, willingly. Sometimes, I mean, who needs the the thought police, you know, in the Orwellian sense, when we are our own police. Um, and for me, that is the troubling point as well. So this function creep and how it relates to the state of exception is precisely in terms of both this quantitative spread of these technologies, but also this qualitative difference is that they're no longer something that is done to us, but also something that we do to ourselves. Sometimes because we don't have a choice. You can't go to the US if you don't submit your fingerprints. Mm. I mean, Agamben famously refused to go and teach in US. Really? Yeah, back in 2004 when they introduced um, biometric uh, identification. He called that biopolitical tattooing and he refused mm. to submit himself to. But it makes me wonder, maybe Agamben will, will have very little chance of troubling at all if because all the countries eventually will adopt biometrics so so what do you do in this in this sense do you really um deprive yourself from the right to travel because you you don't want to submit your fingerprints or do you just submit to the system and and but it saddens me that we no longer have a choice that in order to access a certain space or a certain service we have to submit to these practices i mean that is the that's where i see sovereign power mm. because it is sovereign dressed up as choice but really, it's not so much of a choice. You either submit or you don't access. So it's not so much of a choice. Absolutely. And, and I think also there's a certain kind of um, fetishization mm. of, of these kinds of technologies, especially when they get transformed in, uh, onto the personal level. Uh, the personal, phones and things like yeah, this, totally. Of like actually, um, it seems kind of cool. Uh, you know, that, mm. that, I'm, that I'm using a, a, a yeah. fingerprint scan, which is something I associate with security services or James Bond movies or, yes, or this kind totally. of thing um, and so I think that 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 has an impact on it as well and but that 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 idea of function creep is really is really powerful for me and it's something that once you're aware of you can you can start to see mm. um, of, of how that spread and totally. it helps to think through um, the potential kind of consequences of absolutely that. and also how increasingly we are living in this state of emergency whenever something so, happens yeah. like isolated incidents become the norm and become yeah. uh, a window of opportunity to declare a state of emergency for years and years uh, and push for illiberal practices mm. that before wouldn't have been possible to push for um, so that's one of the ramifications mm. is that um, these practices become normalized and they become like um, they acquire a social value when you tell people I'm doing this for your own security mm. for your own safety so you have to really submit your fingerprints at the airport for your own safety uh, because we are trying to weed out those who are dangerous yeah. and, and threatening and, and uh, should not be here um, so so this is course of securitization is increasingly deployed to uh, normalize practices that otherwise would be seen as really illiberal and uh, going beyond what is deemed as acceptable in, 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 the, in terms of human rights and so on. Um, and I think how they get personalized is really interesting and I think uh, you'll have seen I, I imagine the, this new kind of social credit system mm. that's been introduced in, in China, in China. Yeah, and I yeah. think that this is actually maybe a way of linking into, into your more recent research as well which I mean this if people aren't, um, aren't aware of it who are listening it's, it's a system which Virtually every aspect of people's lives are being mm. tracked, whether that's their, their, their credit, um, their, their online activities, uh, all sorts of things. 
uh, and people are awarded a, a kind of a, um, hmm. uh, a social credit score, yes. uh, which can then impact on your access to services and, and all sorts of other Absolutely. things. But again, that's something which initially, at least, is um, vol- voluntary. Hmm. People signing up because it's because it's beneficial to them, um, and this seems to have quite clear implications potentially, kind of for freedom and and mm. um, and, um, and surveillance. Um, and it's one of these things which gets reported in uh, in newspapers, sort of English language newspapers, is this kind of crazy thing that they're doing in this in, in mm. this semi semi totalitarian regime. Uh, not at all. I think we already have um, increasingly this culture of rating this rating systems we have a culture of um, uh, reputation economy um, and also it's this practices and this examples also goes to show that the relationship between the citizen and the the state is being redefined again alongside this terms of performance productivity uh, how active you are how how much engaged you are as a bio-citizen and an economic citizen and, and so on. So I wouldn't see it as an aberrant example or something that is only um, confined to totalitarian regimes, but it's it's here with us also in Western democracies. I mean, p- perhaps still on a voluntary basis, mm-hmm. but we know from experience that what is voluntary now will become uh, something that is the rule yeah. um, in a few years' time. Absolutely, and I think that... Um I think the, the the main difference perhaps between here and China is that their their online systems are much more kind of integrated mm-hmm. uh, with one another. I think and and with the state. Although I'm as we're aware, our our nation states are pretty kind of well integrated with the companies. We saw this from the kind of the Snowden revelations and all Absolutely. this kind of thing. Anyway, um, but it's maybe been slightly it's slightly easier in 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 that context. Um, but that's already happening in Scandinavian societies, for instance. Yeah. It's like when I um, went to, 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 to do this fellowship in, in Aarhus, uh, the first thing I had to do is that I had to register to have a, what is called a CPR number. So anybody who is in Denmark for more than three months has to have a CPR number. Uh, and to my surprise, this CPR number was really such a, an uncanny thing because it links to everything, every activity in your life. So my CPR number links to my bank account, it links to my gym membership, it links to my uh, to my uh, medical record, uh, it links to my library. Uh, so pretty much, it links it links to my passport number. It links to everything. So if somebody wants to profile me, they only need to have my CPR number, and then they will get to know what books I read. Uh, how many times I go to the gym, even what food I eat, because when I pay with my bank card in a supermarket, then you can know what I've purchased. Uh, so it can link to my medical record to basically every single thing. And I was surprised that, that they have such a system, and I really uh, confronted some of my colleagues there. Uh, but to my surprise, it was such a normal thing, especially for my fellow Danish colleagues who said, well, it's convenient, it's great, we love it, because it makes your life easy. But I was trying to, sh- to, to show them, but don't you see that the potential for control and surveillance and monitoring and so on that can emerge out of this ease of having everything linked into one database. So I wouldn't say that only totalitarian regimes that have very robust interoperable kind of systems. We already have that established in Western democracies as well. Um, And once the data is there, then we are vulnerable because anything can happen with it. I I had no idea about that. That's that's really fascinating. Um, And so that's 
and I, that, that's how this one of the ways in which this connects with the um, uh, the more kind of personal personalised uh, in some cases consumer end of um, biometrics really which you're looking at now in terms of self-tracking so um, what kinds of what kind of specific areas are you looking at um, and I wonder if you can say something about how you think that that's that does connect with your biometrics work mm-hmm. well I'm trying to look at how people are using these technologies and how and primarily how these technologies are redefining what it means to be healthy uh, because as you know there are a lot of norms circulating around when it comes to this field of self-tracking like walking 10,000 steps a day mm-hmm eating five vegetables or fruits if you're in the UK but if you're in Denmark it's eight actually Uh, so yeah so it's not precise science as such Uh, so I'm very much interested to see how the use of the self-tracking technologies are redefining what it means to be healthy Mm. both at the individual level but also at the kind of macro level because as I said many healthcare uh, entities are interested in this uh, self-tracking practices and trying to kind of redefine the norms of health and fitness and wellness and so on um, and I'm also trying to look at public understanding of the issues that come with self-tracking like data ownership data security data protection surveillance issues and from the research that I've conducted so far um, like I've done an international survey and some some um, interviews in Denmark it seems to me that there is a huge lack of uh, understanding of what happens to that data once this data you are producing passively, what happened to to, to it? Where does it get uh, stored? Who owns it? Who is it shared with? And so people have a lack of understanding around these issues, which I find quite problematic. And I'm also looking at how uh, (coughs) manufacturers of these devices are dealing with these issues of data uh, and so on. And again, it is very troubling to see that the terms and conditions tend to be very vague and I think it's actually done in purpose to, to keep them vague. Um, it's like for instance Fitbit's privacy uh, statement says that they will never share the data with other third parties, other entities, unless it is necessary to do so. But they provide no context as to when it becomes necessary to do so. So they leave it vague so that they can do whatever with the data. So so these are the issues I'm looking at. I'm looking at, first of all, the personal use of these uh, technologies, but also kind of the wider um, issues of security, privacy, uh, and so on. Yeah, and so... Um that kind of um, naivety, I suppose, that, that you're finding uh, in people um, in their usage, when it's where when you're asking them to reflect on that, hmm. um, is it something that seems to be of a concern to people? Do you think, or well, uh, mostly they kind of they say that the convenience outweigh hmm. the danger. They they feel that who am I? to fear that the government will be interested in my data I'm, I'm, I'm you know I'm just uh, it's like I have a statement from yeah. this from this user who said I'm just one insignificant person on this earth what, what my data be right. it's not going to be of any use to anyone uh, but when I explained that sometimes insurance companies would be interested in that data sometimes health entities would be interested in that then they start seeing the the potential use and misuse of that data but still the majority I feel were actually uh, more interested in having the convenience and having the uh, the kind of motivation they, they get out of using these technologies uh, and they felt that this way outweigh far more 
the, the dangers that come with uh, the misuse of data. But I think the majority were scared of the insurance companies more than any other entity. They were not worried about government because they said the government would not be interested in them that much. They were not worried about like uh, the GPs uh, having that data or other medical entities, but they were concerned about the, <coughs> the potential use of this data to assess the, the insurance premium and to define what kind of rate they would get from the insurance companies. And that was more so the case with users from the United States, which makes sense because unlike in Europe, uh, insurance is, health insurance is such a big deal mm-hmm. in uh, Northern uh, America. So, um, so yeah. That's kind of interesting. What that kind of makes me think of is that they're, they're not concerned about um, the government being seeing sort of bad behavior from mm. them because they're confident that they're not misbehaving in terms of what the yeah. government's concerned of. But they might be concerned that they're misbehaving in terms of what health insurance companies Absolutely. consider in terms yes. of... Yes. Th- 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 there's obviously people who wouldn't consider themselves to be breaking uh, many laws. Yes. But possibly But just by not being active enough, exactly, they see yeah. it as bad vis-a-vis yeah. insurance. Yeah. Or vis-a-vis an employer if you are doing the wellness schemes. Mm. Uh, which, absolutely, which I found really interesting as, as, a, as, a, as an approach. Um, it kind of depends who the watch who, who, who the is the watcher, watcher is the absolutely. Yeah. But I think the, the, what I found problematic is that people still subscribing to this discourse, discourse of the innocence has nothing to fear. Yeah, I don't mind my data being used because I haven't done anything mm. wrong. But I remind them of what Snowden said: if you think that privacy is not important because you have nothing to hide, it's like saying that free speech is not important mm. because you have nothing to say. Mm. Um, and then they they reflect <laughs> on, on that and. Just because you haven't done anything wrong, it does not mean people have the right to use your data in ways that you are not aware of or you haven't you haven't actually um, consented to. And just and also when we look at privacy, it's not just about individual data, but also how that individual data becomes can be used in a in a much more social social kind of at a social level mm. like at the aggregate level you might not consent to having your data feeding into practices that you don't consent to at the social level like categorization according to your postcode or your income you might not want that even if you have done nothing wrong so so this is what people need to really be mindful of um, in terms of the the kind of the potential ramification of of this uh, self tracking data that's. Um, I think that's a good warning to uh, yes. <laughs> to, to end on. But um, so I'll say uh, thank you uh, very much. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having me. For thank you. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating, and hope to catch up with you again soon. Yeah, thanks very much, Chris. Thank you. Bye bye. So there it is. I think that was some pretty fascinating stuff from Tihaj there. As usual, if you would like to find uh, the rest of my podcasts, you can find them on my blog, which is thisisnotasociology.blog, and you can also search for digital health slash digital capitalism on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud, and you can also subscribe at all those places to get regular updates of the, the podcast. Um, if you'd also like to leave a review on any of those uh, particularly on iTunes that would be great the theme music is Bleeps Galore by Rocco 
and the incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78 and they are both used on a Creative Commons license. This podcast was written, presented and edited by me. See you next time.